Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Great America Podcast with Lou Dobbs, always in the fight for truth, justice, and yes, our American way of life. And now, here he is, the Peabody Award-winning voice of truth, the great Lou Dobbs. Welcome to the Great America Show, and we thank you for being with us, as always. President Biden's presidency has been plagued by misstatements, misjudgments, maladroit handling of almost every issue, and challenges that are faced by this nation from a devastating pandemic that claimed more American lives in Biden's first year in office than in President Trump's last year in office, and from Russia's very real threat to invade Ukraine to Xi Jinping's very real takeover of Hong Kong and aggression in the South China Sea. China's threats to invade Taiwan persist, and insults are being hurled at the United States almost weekly, and they go without response from the Biden administration. Biden's approval numbers have fallen dramatically since this past summer a summer in which he ordered a hasty and chaotic withdrawal of all our troops in Afghanistan. And some say he can never recover in the polls after that dismal handling of the withdrawal, and particularly the August Taliban attacks on the Kabul airport that resulted in the deaths of 12 of our Marines and a Navy corpsman. The Pentagon may not soon recover either from the backlash that followed the disastrous withdrawal and the loss of American lives seemingly so needlessly. The White House and Pentagon tried to manage, of course, the public outcry. The public outrage, however, overwhelmed the Biden damage control efforts. But one Marine officer publicly called for those in command to be held accountable. Marine Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller called out his superiors for their failure in organizing and implementing the Afghan withdrawal and their failure to take responsibility for their failure and the deaths of 13 service members. We're proud to say Colonel Scheller joins us here today on The Great America Show. And we welcome a man who stood up for his principles and the nations suffering immensely for doing so. Stuart Scheller, delighted to have you with us here on the broadcast and welcome. And thanks, Lou, for having me on the show. Uh, I've listened to The Great American Show before. And I know you have a strong followership, so I'm just happy to be a part of it and get to discuss some things that I think are very important and that all Americans should be talking about and thinking about. Well, uh, thank you for that. And uh, when I say uh, I'm proud to have you with us, I mean exactly that. Proud of you and uh, what you stand for and the guts it took uh, to stand for the principles that you expressed. I think a lot of people don't understand and uh, often that uh, people who speak truth to power, uh, who seek truth and are principled in their lives, uh, are usually uh, people who have the, uh, the character to know that there will be consequences and still they go ahead. Give us all here a sense of how you felt uh, that, uh, that August uh, when we saw so much chaos. The U.S. military obviously botching uh, the withdrawal, uh, the human tragedy uh, that we witnessed, uh, and your feelings as a Marine officer responsible for the lives and the conduct uh, of uh, so many of our, our troops. What went through your mind and heart as you watched? Yeah, I appreciate the question. So people that may not be familiar with me, I'm a 17-year infantry officer. I've been to Iraq and Afghanistan. I've deployed five times. And at the time where Afghanistan was really unraveling quickly, I was a battalion commander at a place called Advanced Infantry Training Battalion on the east coast of Camp Lejeune. Previous to that, I was a regimental operations officer. So I was tran-manning and equipping the unit that ultimately responded, Victor 1-8. So they're a battalion within six Marines. So I was intimately familiar with all the people, the leaders that had responded. And I was also a member 
uh, as a young lieutenant in 1-8. So the, the unit that responded just had a lot of crossroads in my upbringing and experiences in life. So it was personal in that way. And then obviously having just served downrange in Afghanistan, you know, running and gunning, it was also very personal for me based on my experiences. So as I was watching it unfold every day in the media and on social media, I was getting angry. I was getting frustrated. And this is foreign diplomacy. Not only have I served, but this is something I've thought about extensively. I got a master's degree in military science. My thesis was on how to make foreign diplomacy more effective, right? I wrote a 65 page paper on this. Like, this is something that I have thought about, that I have lived, that I have experienced. And so as I was watching it, I was just thinking about all the mistakes, the missteps, and I was frustrated by it. And then on 18 August, the Commandant of the Marine Corps put out a white letter, which is essentially a formal correspondence to the whole Marine Corps, where he was addressing all the military members that were getting upset in the fallout of Afghanistan. And he just said, you know, what you did was worth it, but if you're having problems, go see a therapist. And that letter really frustrated me because over the last 20 years, we've won every tactical battle. So if you really study this, you know, if you go back to Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, we're winning the tactical battles. That's where we're not losing. We're losing at the operational level, which is the combatant command level, which is the four-star general level connected to the National Security Council and the political level. Like That's where we're failing wars. So for the general to put out a letter trying to say, hey, your sacrifices were worth it without addressing the failures of the leadership. I mean, if he would have addressed the failures of the leadership, the Marines could have avoided the trip to the therapist. And so I was mad when he put out that letter and then came 26 August when the attack happened and we lost a bunch of people. And I just got to a point where I knew addressing it within the system wasn't going to have the change that was needed. We needed to have a public conversation. My senior leaders either didn't understand or were just being very negligent. And so I made a YouTube video that I posted essentially addressing just, just that, that we needed accountability. And I didn't, I made it at work that day of the attack, but I understood full well what it meant for my career. I mean, I was scared to post it at work. I drove home and I actually paced in front of my house, like thinking, do I post this? Do I post this? Because I knew once I did, and if it took off that, I was most likely going to be relieved and all my suffering and sacrifices and work up to that point in my career, which had been very successful up to that point, was going to come off the rails. But, you know, it came from a place of love. I love the military. I love the Marines. I love the service member. And I think they've done wonderful things. And I thought somebody needed to speak up. And a lot of people through this ordeal have pointed out how it wasn't my place to speak up. And I agree with them. But the truth is, there's no one else speaking up. And I just kind of felt like, if not me, who? And if not now, when? Like, you know, we're already on to focusing on China and trying to fix the, you know, let's just use the Marine Corps, for example. The commandant is trying to mature the force, focus on distributed operations. He's focusing on the tactical level. Again, the tactical level is successful every single time. No one is focusing on how to fix the operational slash strategic level where we are consistently failing. And it starts with accountability of senior leaders. And so that's why I did that. And on that day that you're pacing in front of your, your residence, uh, were you afraid you might not the next day make that posting uh, of that video? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you, if you go back and watch it, I even say in the video, if I have the courage to post it, because I, I mean, what I thought was going to happen was when I posted that video, an investigation would take place and then they would relieve me after the investigation. But yeah. what happened was they pulled me in and just relieved me immediately with no investigation. And that upset me. But I, I still at that point didn't plan on making any other statements. But then all these previous bosses of mine started getting on my social media and, and attacking me personally and saying, if I had any honor, I would resign. And, you know, and so it became one of these situations where I thought it was just going to be that first video. But then it, when the system attacks me, it's like when you're in a fight, when somebody starts pushing you, I had a choice where I could just kind of go in the fetal position and submit or push back. And I felt like what I was saying was important enough. And I believed in it fully that when when the system started attacking me, I just started attacking back. And it became this escalating series of them imposing sanctions, gag orders, threats, uh, mental health evaluations that, you know, it ultimately culminated with me in jail and going to court martial. Were you shocked 
uh, when you found out you were, you were on your way to the brig? You know, I, every time I posted something, I thought through what the command would do. And there was, a, if you, the post, the final post I made before I went into the brig, I, I wrote, I'm willingly violating the gag order. And then I went on to point out things that I, you know, no right. one was talking about, but were true. And I said, I'll see you at zero eight, be ready for the brig, have the MPs waiting for me. So like, obviously I had thought through, there was a good chance they would send me to the brig, but I also had read the manual for court martial in the UCMJ before I made that post to see what requirements were necessary to put me in the brig. And one of them is a, you have to be a flight risk. And I was showing up to work every single day. And so I thought they're going to have a hard time putting me in the brig, uh, justifying that I'm a flight risk. And so I was kind of, I didn't, I didn't know how they were going to play it. And ultimately they sent me to the brig and they wrote on the documentation that I was a flight risk, which is a, just a blatant lie. I mean, I literally showed up that Monday morning at zero eight after I said, I'll be there at zero eight to send me to jail. You know, I was showing up to work every day. They were texting me. I was texting back. They were calling. I was calling back. Like at no point was I a flight risk. And so they had to cut some corners and basically just say factually incorrect things to justify the imprisonment. And the other so, thing is you're not supposed to go to jail for a special court martial. There is no pre-trial for a special court martial. So right. like in all respects, it was, in my opinion, illegal, which goes back to, I could have fought it and gone to general. And I think I probably could have got off because of how incorrectly they played it. But the other part of it was I was in, in certain respects trying to bait them to send me to jail to just consistently illustrate the hypocrisy of the system. You know, they sent me to jail or they relieved me without an investigation. General McKenzie killed civilians, children, bringing water to <laughs> needy people. And they didn't fire him right away. They did an investigation. And then following the investigation, they said, yeah, that was a pretty bad mistake, but it wasn't negligent. So we're going to let him keep his job. Whereas me, I, I demand accountability and we're not even going to have an investigation. We're just going to relieve yeah. me immediately and then throw me in the brig. Right. So a lot of the things I was doing after the fact were just to keep illustrating and keep the news cycle going that like, hey, this is broken, guys. Let's take a look at this. Those uh, who are listening to you right now may wonder about this word accountability. And they may wonder about the command structure, but when you're talking about wars uh, fought and, and lost over the and, and lost is uh, I'm using the word advisedly, uh, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Iraq, uh, we go back to the Persian Gulf War where that was decidedly a, a a victory for the United States and our troops. But these wars that we are fighting as police actions in which we have lost precious lives of our service members uh, left uh, in this last instance, uh, billions, tens of billions of dollars of equipment at the order of the commander in chief just left it for the Taliban and other enemies of the United States. Uh, this is without explanation from the Pentagon, without rationalization. And we know that right now the United States military is in deep, deep trouble and there's no acknowledgement of it uh and they're trying to sweep your comments under the rug as quickly as they can whether by ignoring them or suppressing uh your observations but we know this our generals our admirals the military leadership and the civilian leadership uh over the united states military is in desperate desperate trouble and that means this nation is in desperate trouble do you agree yeah, I 100% agree. I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah. So here's my thoughts on this. Most Americans don't understand how foreign diplomacy works and how the different departments divide up the globe. So if you take the Department of Defense, they divide it up into combatant commands. If you take the Department of State, they divide it up into different regions that aren't even the same map. The, the Department of Intelligence, same way. So each agency within the government divides up the globe into regions. And then in those regions, you have regional commanders. Mm -hmm. And so in the military, CENTCOM combatant command is General McKenzie. And everyone knows General Milley, and he's given a lot of reasons for people to dislike him and to question his honor and integrity. But quite honestly, General Milley had nothing to do with the Afghanistan. General McKenzie works straight for the Secretary of Defense who works for the president. And so how this works is the CENTCOM combatant commander develops plans. So he has what they call operational planners that give him a bunch of courses of action, COAs, to say, here's the different ways that we can do this. 
And I know that those planners gave him a bunch of options to maintain Bagram Air Base, right? And so then General McKenzie takes all these plans and he goes to the National Security Council and he goes to the Secretary of Defense and he presents these plans. Well, I know that President Biden came back and said, no, we're not going to keep Bagram because of the restraints. I want to get people out of there. So just wave off of Bagram, pull chalks, and we'll fall back to Kabul, right? So a couple of things on that. First, any good staff officer knows that they have to convince their boss why their plan is the best, right? And so in my opinion, General McKinsey had an obligation to convince them why keeping Bagram Air Base was important. He failed to do that. Okay, so you failed that. Now, the president has said, here's the resources and restraints for you to execute. General McKinsey has a second decision. He failed to influence. Now he can resign. A lot of people say general officers shouldn't resign because that becomes political. And the military, rightfully so, wants to remain apolitical. And if we have senior general officers that are just resigning all the time because they don't like the resources or the ideas or, or the orders of the president, then it becomes the appearance, at least, of a political nature. So, okay. That, that by the way, I, let me interrupt you there. Uh, Stu, that is, you know, that is solipsistic. Uh, it, it is a rationalization. Uh, if it's inculcated values within the military that you don't resign because you appear uh, uh, political, well, my God, everybody knows that the military is now political because of Milley, because of what we have witnessed, uh, because of uh, what <laughs> the direct command from the uh, commander in chief, uh, disregarding the entire military. You know, you just go through this. You, you mentioned the the, uh, the layover, uh, the overlays for uh, intelligence, for defense, the State Department and diplomacy. We, we've just witnessed three intelligence agencies work with work with the uh, the so-called interagency to uh, carry out a fraud impeachment against the president of the United States. We've just watched in terms of the military, absolute silence on the part of FBI agents who knew that they were framing a three-star general for crying out loud. And I'm referring to General Flynn in the White House in the okay. early days, because there is this culture of where we don't speak up, going to what you're talking about, we don't speak up, we don't resign, we are inert, and basically, we just do what we're told, because everything beyond doing what you're told would give the wrong impression. I mean, my God, what kind of mindlessness is this that is uh, besotted our, our, serv our, our public servants in both the State Department, the the Pentagon, our intelligence agencies, our law enforcement agencies, the Department of Justice. I mean, it's madness. I completely agree. I mean, I, I resigned, right? Right. So I agree with you, obviously, through my actions, demonstrate that I said, hey, this is something that is wrong. And I resigned. Uh, but, you know, so General McKenzie didn't do that. And, and, mo and he's got a lot of people up there that would argue that he shouldn't have. But here's here's the third point. Right. So he didn't influence. He didn't resign. So here's my point. Once he accepted the resources of the plan and said, okay, I'm going to execute this and not resign, he is now 100% responsible for that plan. He doesn't, after the fact, then get to say, no, I gave the president other options and he decided he didn't want them, so I'm not accountable. It doesn't work like that, right? You have the right. ability to influence him. You have the ability to resign. But once you don't do those things, then you're accountable, General McKenzie. And so he took this plan and he did not execute it well, right? He didn't do it out of malice. He didn't do it because he's a bad guy. I, I know a lot of guys in the Marine Corps that think very highly of him. I mean, he's a good leader, but ultimately his plan failed horribly. He relied on the Taliban for security. He just uh, massively underestimated the speed with which the Taliban would advance. And we left all that gear, not because we deliberately wanted to leave the gear. It's because we were in a panic state and we had to get out of there. You know, we've leave a lot of gear in countries and it ultimately comes down to, is it more expensive to ship it back to the United States or to just blow it up? Right. Mm -hmm. And so there are some deliberate calculations that are made in terms of leaving gear, but that's not what happened in Afghanistan. We left gear in haste. And, and if you watch General McKenzie's testimony after the fact, he said, well, there's still hundreds of Americans left in Afghanistan, but this is a 
Department of State endeavor now, and the Department of Defense's plans and execution is complete. And then I watched Secretary Blinken testify in front of Congress, and he said, uh, I didn't inherit a plan, and I wasn't prepared. And it's like, how does that happen? How does the Department of Defense leave when there's hundreds of Americans and say, now the Department of State's got it? And then the Secretary of State's like, yeah, I didn't have a plan. I didn't know what I was doing. Like, I just, it like makes me want to put my head through a wall. Like, I, it's it's crazy. Yeah. Well, take good care of that head because it's working very well for the country in particular. Uh, the There is a, it's just a sense about this conversation, I have to tell you. Of all the pain and blood and death uh, that Afghanistan represents for Americans and for Afghanistan itself, to have one Marine Corps officer stand up and say, I can't stomach the hypocrisy, the lack of principle, the lack of character, judgment, and honor on the part of the command staff of the United States military. It's not just the Marine Corps you're talking about. Uh, I, I, I mean, think about that. I, I know you must have, but you talk about one man standing uh, against the tide. You're it. Uh, I, there is no analog for Lieutenant Colonel Stu Scheller. There's no one like you. Yeah, I, you know, I really believe that once I spoke out, more of my peers would be vocal, at least in, you know, they, they didn't need to do everything I did, but acknowledge the content of my statements publicly and say, you know what, he's, what he's saying is correct. And just nobody even had the courage to do that. Not only did they not do that, I mean, they personally attacked me in the investigation. I mean, they sent me to a, a command-directed mental health evaluation when, you know, Lou, I missed the birth of my first child on a combat deployment in Afghanistan, right? They didn't make me get a mental health evaluation after that. It didn't make me get a mental health evaluation when I missed the funeral of like every living grandparent or, you know, I could go on and on in, with examples like this. The only time they made me get a mental health evaluation is when I spoke out against everything you just described, the hypocrisy, ineptitude, uh, inability to see the bigger picture. And so that's, yeah, it was very heartbreaking uh, in a lot of ways. And when you think about how many moral courage classes, case studies, things we do, and, and, and most people admit that the content of what I said is correct, but just none of them had the courage to even acknowledge that uh, publicly. And so, yeah. and, and I get it. There is a lot. I mean, the, the military came out and, and made an order that if anyone supported my social media, it was punishable. Right. And I still had a lot of, a lot of military members uh, supporting my social media, even despite that order. You know, I think the military kind of backed away from that because they realized how the public opinion was, was going, but. Well, the public opinion right now of the United States military, it hasn't been, it hasn't been lower uh, since, well, since really Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's, we had one element of our government that was prized and that was the military. And what they've done to politicize, whether it's CRT, whether it is this wokeness that these uh, idiots uh, who claim they're leaders are, are uh, you know, indoctrinating throughout the, uh, the services. It, it, it's just, it's terrible. And, and then Afghanistan, the, the loss of life, the loss of purpose, the, it, you know, you can say what you want to, but this, this is a, a terrible moment in American history. We're, we fought uh, countries that are, you said that we've won tactically. Uh, there are those who say that all war is tactical. Uh, and for anyone who's ever been in the trenches, that's exactly what it is. But to think that this country isn't strong enough in its military academies and its uh, officer training to say, what does failure look like? And how do we deal with failure? because every one of those generals is responsible for the failure. And to suggest we will not, I mean, we've got more generals. What is it? I mean, it's like 400% uh, more generals now than we had with 12 million Americans fighting in World War II. Yep. It's a bureaucracy. It is a corporate entity. It is not a military with leaders saying, 
this is the national purpose. This is the, the objective and the mission, and we will accomplish it. Instead, we have a general, a four-star general, writing war doctrine called the long war. I, I mean, it's idiotic, rationalizing failure as doctrine, as doctrinal. Uh, make it long, persist, uh, instead of fight and kill. Yeah, I mean, you you hit on a lot of things there. Um, so I'll start with the public opinion degrading. I think quite honestly, the lionizing of the generals and the overappreciation has not allowed criticism of the military, which we are in desperate need of. I right. think people need to be very critical and have open conversations because just Part of the problem is the American people is afraid to criticize it because then it seems they're anti-military. Even Congress is scared. Congress, when the fallout oh, yeah. of Afghanistan happened, took turns giving sound bites of anger, and then what? Nothing. Right, the right. Congress's influence over the DoD is the budget, and what wasn't in the news was six days previous to all their you know sound bites of anger. They all unanimously approved one of the biggest budgets. Not one of them had the courage to stand against the budget and say, show me metrics of effectiveness based on what you did with the last budget. Show me who's accountable in the wars, right? Because then that would have appeared anti-military and it would have gone against their self-preservation to remain in Congress. And so people need to be able to criticize the military. Congress needs to be able to criticize the military because quite honestly, it's wildly ineffective right now. And as you pointed out, we have just a ton of general officers. If you go back and look at the amount of general officers that were fired in World War II, it, I, I, we'd have to pull the stats, but you know, just as a point of an example, I would submit almost as many general officers were fired in World War II than they have in all the wars since, right? It's it's that's, an, inter that's an interesting point. I have never I've never heard it brought up before, and I've never thought about it myself. Yeah, but I guarantee you, we'll ch we'll check it out. That's a that's so, a great so the consideration. Book, uh, there's a book called The Generals, written by Rick Scott, and it goes into depth on this. He does a right. lot of great research. And the bottom line is. People in World War II were fired all the time and not even right. just fired, but were just benched and not even given a chance to command based on different things that they did differently in World War II. And somehow after that, we got away from that. And Vietnam is a perfect example. The, the case study for moral courage that the military uses almost uh, consistently is My Lai. In, the, in Vietnam, there was an incident in My Lai where a young lieutenant went through with his platoon and basically just massacred a small village of women and children. And some helicopter pilot, a chief warrant officer, flies down and stops this. And so right. it's celebrating the chief warrant officer having the moral courage. And what they don't talk about in that case study is that the lieutenant and the captain were held accountable, but there was no general officer, you know, there was no colonel that was fired for essentially a massacre of a village and setting the command culture. And so there's a perfect example of like, we talk about moral courage, like why weren't general officers held accountable for that? You know, and you could, I could give a million examples. And so now you're, you also brought up the long war. Another problem I have is the theory of counterinsurgency that's made so many of our generals lionized, popular celebrities. I mean, mm -hmm. Mattis, McChrystal, uh, Petraeus, I mean, go down the list. They're all counterinsurgency gurus. Quite honestly, we're failing at the operational strategic level because we're getting caught in insurgencies. The way you win a war is to not get caught in an insurgency, right? If you get in yourself into an insurgency, now you got to break out the small war, wars manual and understand counterinsurgency. But these guys like Mattis, who people just think are these war heroes, I mean, the guy never saw combat until he was in 06, right? And then and then he becomes this counterinsurgency guru, but we didn't win those counterinsurgencies. Right. And when right. he was the secretary of defense and he publicly resigned over President Trump's policies in Syria, that ISIS threat was a product of the failed war in which Mattis got popular. And so all it seems right now is we have this generation of generals like we, we don't have a general that's won a war. And it goes back to your point about the exactly. bureaucracy of it. Like we have to have certain celebrities, celebrities and we want to like lionize the military members, but we need criticism. We need to look at like, let's check the record. How many wars did you win? You know, like, what are your actual experiences? Like, what do you stand for? And we just don't seem to have that in my generation that I saw. Well, Colonel, we're, uh, we're indebted to you, as I said, for your character and for your actions. 
and uh, deep respect uh, for all that you've done and have endured. Uh, I think that the audience of, uh, of this show would certainly like to know what you're going to be doing uh, and where they can uh, help in any way, because each of us is invested uh, in truth, which you represent, and uh, in this great nation, uh, uh, which is represented by that uniform that you had to uh, let go of. Uh, you know, I, tell us what, what's, what's next for you and what we can do. Yeah, the million-dollar question is what's next. I, when I started this, everyone was speculating that it was political motivations, and this was never political for me. This was always about right. truth. This was about making the military better. Um, but I, I am, like I said, I wrote my master's thesis on foreign diplomacy. I love the United States. So I will probably uh, pursue politics, but I just, right now, this ordeal has just taken such a physical, mental, spiritual toll on me that I don't see myself doing anything, at least in this 22 cycle personally. So what I did, I was on a gag order for three months. I put together a coalition of veteran candidates. My bumper sticker on how I want to make change is we need leaders, not politicians, is the bottom line. When I, That story I told about Congress not standing against the DOD budget, to me, is a symptom that people aren't doing the hard things. They're doing what is in the best interest of public support at that moment. Right. And I think veteran candidates, oftentimes, who have experience in foreign diplomacy and have experience in leadership might be able to do some of the things that I don't see happening right now. So I've got, I put together five veteran Senate candidates and 20 congressional candidates, and we've done a couple of Zooms and for lack of a better term, I'm, I'm basically just like the, the guy in the shadows bringing the group together and, and providing them access to political action committees, to media, to different ways to bring attention to their, their group. We have a website for them, and that's votesforvets.org. And uh, so in the, in the next couple of months, or at least through November, I'll probably be on the campaign trail helping some of those candidates because I'd like to see out of that group of 25 that I got at least five votes. And I think that'll be a good start to accomplish some of the things that I want to uh, in changing our government. And then I'll probably end up running in 24. If you want to see my personal political views, you can go to my website. So my personal website is authenticamericans.com. And ultimately my pitch there is I think that the extreme right and the extreme left um, might, might be doing more harm than good. And so you know, we're never as Americans all going to agree on something. But I, if I could put a divide between those extremes, I think, quite honestly, the center right and the center left may even have more in common than those extremes of, of each political party. I'm a conservative, uh, you know, by trade. I was going to my local GOP meetings before this, but I still have a, a lot in common with like a, a Democratic congressional candidate or uh, I'm sorry, rep, no longer rep, but Tulsi Gabbard made some comments about accountability in the government and in the military. And so like, there's someone who I have maybe a lot of differences in, but I still can look at a lot of similarities. And so I'll probably run uh, in for some political office in 24, support my candidates in 22. Um, you can check out my website at authenticamericans.com. Authenticamericans.com. Yep. Appreciate it, Colonel. Thanks so much for being with us. We wish you all the very best. Uh, Stuart Scheller, Jr., uh, it, it sounds like you're going to have an interesting, uh, another interesting period in your life. I look forward to talking with you again and keep us posted and uh, come back soon. We'll talk about your progress along the way. Uh, I look forward to it. I, I would like that. Thanks, Lou. And stay the, stay the hell out of those shadows. We kind of like having, <laughs> we like you having been out in the light. Uh, the country needs that light. Thank you, sir. Right. Thank you. I mean, he's a tremendous, tremendous American. I, I just think there's just, uh, you know, what can I say? Uh, we salute you and uh, uh, admire you. It's, uh, we need more like him. It was and soon. The Great America Show continues in one moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Much more next. With all that's going on in this country, we thought it would be interesting and important to talk with a man who's in the midst of our political and cultural battles for the future of the nation. Our guest is running for the U.S. Senate in the great state of Missouri. He's an attorney, an honors graduate of Southern Methodist University, and earned his law degree from SMU as well. 
He's a lifelong Republican, but this is the first time that he's run for political office. You've probably seen what are now iconic photos of Mark and his wife, Patty, from the summer of protests, riots, and violence in streets all across the country in 2020. Those photos show the McCloskeys as they stood proudly and defiantly in their front yard in St. Louis with Mark's rifle and Patty's pistol at the ready while Black Lives Matter protesters marched along the street in front of their home. With us today on The Great America Show to talk about those days and the future that he intends to influence is Mark McCloskey, great American Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate. Mark, a pleasure and an honor to have you with us here on The Great America Show. Well, thanks for having me, Lou, and it's an it's a honor to be on your show. We are... Uh, you know, I think the whole country was galvanized by those pictures of you and your wife uh, as you as you stood there uh, at the ready to protect your home. Uh, give us a sense. Did you have any idea of the, I'll call it a brouhaha, uh, a protest, and all of it, of course, manufactured by the left, uh, that would follow uh, your just simple statement that uh, your home is your castle and you would defend it? Well, you know, when uh, when the crowd started to dwindle away and the, the, the threats and the, uh, and the shouts and the threats of death and rape and arson were dwindling down and I was facing a sea of cell phones, I said, you know, I suspect this isn't going to end well. <laughs> well, uh, the, your, uh, your deductive reasoning on that, as I would expect of an attorney of your caliber, was uh, absolutely excellent. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it, it's such a shame because in every way you were within your rights. Uh, and what followed were uh, you know, legal uh, troubles. You were the target of, the, of what I call the Marxist left in this country. Uh, whether they're local or state or, or, or federal uh, uh, political operatives. Uh, give us a sense of what, uh, what that was like uh, in terms of your legal uh, travail uh, that you had to face as a consequence. Well, you know, and then let me give you a little bit of background too, because the, uh, the, the mainstream media narrative that these were peaceful social justice protesters walking calmly past my house on the way to the mayor's house is, is all complete, uh, you know, uh, fake news, as one might suspect. Right. You gotta, you gotta appreciate that in the city of St. Louis, the the background level of violence is so enormous. People that live in the civilized world probably can't imagine it. But we've always been the murder capital of the world. But then you have to add to that the George Floyd effect. And on the night of June the first, June the second of 2020, uh, the 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 people that are the champions of of social justice and diversity and inclusion decided the best way to show their love for St. Louis was by burning it down. And they set downtown St. Louis on fire. They shot four police officers that night, killed a retired police captain, David Dorn, right. burned the uh, 7-Eleven to the ground two blocks from the police headquarters in St. Louis. And we watched that on a live helicopter feed for 30 or 40 minutes. Not a single policeman showed up. Not a single fireman showed up. And my wife, Patty, and I looked at each other and said, you know, when the fit hits the Shan, you're out here in your absolute wild lonesome. Yeah. And... During the, the ensuing month, uh, more and more businesses in our neighborhood got boarded up. More and more businesses got ransacked. Uh, and we just, we just uh, got prepared. And one of the uh, benefits for the, for the criminals of living in a Democrat-controlled city for seven decades is there's no repercussion for crime. And so the, uh, this Antifa organization, by the way, headed by a young lady named Corey Bush, uh, felt that they could publish the time and location of their of their mob actions ahead of time, and had published that they're going to have a mob action in our neighborhood on uh, that Friday, June the 26th. So we put out fire extinguishers around the house and set out guns, and then that that protest didn't happen, and so we thought we dodged the bullet. Then it happened on that Sunday evening when we were out just trying to have dinner. But we just made a decision that we weren't going to take it. We were not going to let it happen in our neighborhood. It's a completely private neighborhood. The street and the sidewalk in front of my house are as private as, as your living room. And when they crashed through that gate and destroyed it, the first thing I did was I stood out on the edge of the porch and said the two most racist white supremacist words known in the English language. I said private property and being communist, <laughs> that pissed them off. Right. Um, and and they started storming in more and more. And 
So my wife and daughter, she was 31 at the time, uh, went in the house to call 911. I reached around the corner where I had my AR stash and pulled it out and stood out there. And, uh, you know, then all of a sudden I see my wife come out in the grass in front of me, you know, just feet from the mob, which is now screaming death threats and arson and everything else, waving that, that, that you know, dumb little Brico pistol over her head. And now I've got a problem because I don't have a clean line of fire. I, you know, now I have to get out there in the grass. And so that's when, the, that's when those iconic pictures get taken. Oh, man. But well, uh, here's, you know, then. You I, know, wanna, I, get, I do want to compliment you right here for having the courage to stand for what is yours and for what is right. Uh, and what is right uh, for all Americans to defend your property, to defend your home, uh, your wife and your daughter. I, I mean, shame on anybody who would expect anyone, any citizen to do otherwise. And, and I mean that shame on them. Uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I mean, the, the American people have been trained to be sheep. And I apologize for saying that to your listening audience. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't, our, our picture would not have had great notoriety if that were the norm and not the exception to stand up for one's rights these days. Um, but, you know, we've been punished thoroughly for it and are continuing to be punished for it. Uh, our George Soros funded circuit attorney charged my wife and I with two Class E felonies, which would have cost us four years in the slammer and our law licenses and our careers and the rest of our livelihood. Um, but fortunately for us, uh, she's not the sharpest knife in the drawer and had used us in her political propaganda for fundraising. And that gave us an opportunity to uh, ask the court to disqualify her and the entire uh, circuit attorney's office from prosecuting us. We got a, a, a special prosecutor appointed who, despite the fact that he had been a Barack Obama U.S. attorney for eight years, was a reasonable and fair guy. He dismissed the felony charges. But then he read me this charge in court, first time we saw him. And he said that I had the, the class C misdemeanor he, he charged me with said that I had purposely placed other people in apprehension of immediate physical injury. I laughed out loud. I said, hell, yes, I did. That's what the guns were for, right? If that's a, <laughs> if that's a crime in Missouri, I did it and I'll do it again. And the, and the judge, who'd been a friend of mine for, for 30 some years, um, uh, looks down off the bench at me and says, now, Mr. McCloskey, did you do those things? And I said, I sure did, Your Honor. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, then uh, the uh, Governor Parson, Mike Parson, had promised to pardon us from, from the very get-go. And he's a, a man of his word, and, and he did immediately. And so we thought that was all over, right? Um, right. And then we then get a, a, a petition filed against us by the uh, chief disciplinary officer for the Missouri Bar Association asking the Supreme Court to suspend our law licenses indefinitely because in standing on our front porch and defending ourselves against a mob of hundreds threatening to kill us, we were acting in moral turpitude and aren't morally fit to be lawyers anymore. And that's our current battle. Unbelievable. Tell us a little bit more about your bar association then, uh, because anyone who has such a corrupt soul, we all need to know more about him or her. Well, you, the, uh, the, it's been, I can't tell you how many years now, but we've got a woke bar association like everywhere now, I guess. We, you know, you have to take a certain number of continuing legal education courses every year to maintain your license. Right. For some years now, we've been required to take diversity and inclusion of propaganda as part oh, of our necessity to, to retain our licenses. And we have to sit through these lectures where people tell us how evil it is to be white and how privileged it is and how we have to uh, we have to treat people differently by their race in order to be non-racist. And you know the nonsense of that is so comprehensive and so obvious that it, it, it would take the uh, entire force of the federal government and the mainstream media to convince people that overt racism is anti-racist, but it's worked. And uh, I said at the time that our, our bar association was too woke to let this go, and it turned out to be true. But I, I think in the real world, this is just part of what AOC announced uh, a year ago last November, and that's a Trump accountability project, that everybody worked, everybody who worked for the Trump campaign or in the Trump administration was going to be harassed for the rest of their lives, and we're just living it. It is really uh, incredible uh, that anyone has to 
put up with this. Uh, and, and I guess the fact of the matter is they do have to put up with it if they're going to be in the public arena. And you've been, for, for most politicians, that's, a, that's not a recent choice to be in the arena. They've been there and the wokeness and the leftist, the neo-Marxist uh, initiatives are new circumstances. But you, you have made the decision knowing full well what the political arena was, the, the dangers, the, uh, what you must endure, and yet you still decided you're going to run for office. Tell well, us you know, what motivated you. Well, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the story's kind of lengthy, but I, I can put it in a nutshell. Most people don't know this because it didn't hit the mainstream media uh, narrative, but the, the mob came back the next Friday on July the 3rd with a specific intent of killing us and burning down the house. And uh, we, uh, we had aid from, from the White House. We had some aid from, I think, Colonel West down in Texas. And when the mob hit our house that Friday, we had six ex-Navy SEALs. We had 10 secondary employment uh, police officers. We had the FBI light aircraft circling the house. We had uh, now the mob, you know, numbering at a thousand by the time they hit the gate. We had what we used to call in the Reagan administration, peace through superior firepower. Um, but that was that was a night that President Trump gave his Mount Rushmore address. Right. And we didn't get a chance to see it that night because we we're a little busy covering a rear end. But Patty and I watched it the next morning. And he talked about defeating Marxist extremism in this country. Uh, and but the mainstream media response called that the most divisive speech that a president could give. And we looked at each other and we said, if defeating Marxist extremism in the United States is divisive, like we're supposed to live in harmony with the right. people that seek to destroy our lifestyle, destroy our religion, destroy our private property, eventually enslave us and put us in re-education camps. If that's what the mainstream media thinks we ought to do, then there's something seriously wrong with this country. We just made a decision that day to put our lives on hold and do everything we could for the rest of our lives to save this country. Well, God bless you for coming to that conclusion and, and taking taking public responsibility and serving the country uh, and uh, running for election for the Senate uh, from from what once was a great state, uh, this great state of Missouri. Yeah, yeah. But th these are tough times for many states, and not least among them is the state of Missouri. I, I want to get from you uh, also a sense of why you believe I, when you talked about the woke bar association, what I've learned over uh, some time covering politics, once I talked uh, about how corrupt Congress itself was, once I talked about how corrupt the Senate had become, then I started reporting on how corrupt the government itself had become, the deep state. And now we have corruption that extends to our courts. When John Roberts, the Chief Justice, stood before the uh, uh, the country and uh, defended his uh, judgment on Obamacare by simply switching the meaning of two words, uh, and and now is proclaimed that there are no uh, Bush judges or Trump judges or Obama judges or I now I guess uh, it would be Biden judges, you know he was he was making a farce of it all because no one in the country now believes John Roberts when he says a damn thing because he's lied for years. Yeah. So with that level of corruption, what can you do? Well, here's the, here's the thing. And, and this goes back to the communist international from, from the beginning of time. The whole goal in, in taking over free countries is to infiltrate every aspect of, of society, the government, education, media, communication, um, to cause the, the environment to be so unpleasant for people of genuine character and conviction that you eventually eliminate all those people and have all the positions filled by their indoctrinated uh, co-conspirators or, or preconditioned sheep. And that's, amongst other things, what the, the VAX mandates are about today, is to yeah. identify and clear out the, uh, the opposition and to, to have a single uh, political entity running everything. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's, it's it, in, in every aspect of our lives now, you no longer have a right to have a difference of opinion. Having a difference of opinion is now a criminal position, according to the current administration. Right. I mean, it, the, the DOJ and the FBI are now just like the KGB. They're the enforcement arm of the, of the, of the woke state. 
And it, it, it's absolutely true. When, when you have the Attorney General of the United States uh, talking about investigating parents who believe that their local school boards should be responsive to their will, to their judgments and views, uh, and also uh, now because they raise their voices at a meeting, suddenly are put under a category of a domestic terrorist. This is outrageous. Uh, and and it, we're watching it everywhere. Uh, so as we watch the Republican Party try to disengage itself from its somewhat questionable relationship uh, with, uh, and I think corrupt relationship with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, with the, uh, the, the Business Roundtable, with uh, Wall Street, uh, and become under Trump the, the party of the working man and woman in this country, irrespective of race, creed, or color, and to become the party of the American family, and to put America first, is that the same Republican Party without him at the head of it? You know, I think that, that, the, uh, that the President Trump represented an entirely new form of presidency where, was, where he was actually working for the people, regardless of political or social consequences. But I mean, we now have a country where there's officially sanctioned censorship, where the President of the United States has announced that he has a right to determine what's information and what is misinformation, and he can prevent us from hearing information that he doesn't like. This current president has made so many unconstitutional executive orders, and I just, I just don't understand where, why there's no outrage. Why, when he says things like he did in connection with the eviction moratorium, that I know what I'm doing is illegal, I know it's unconstitutional, but I'm going to do it anyway, how come there aren't 50 Republican senators standing on the steps of the Capitol building screaming outrage? Well, that's because they, they're in on it. They, they're not outraged. They're part of it. And that's what the people of this country need to wake up and recognize. And I think that's why um, they flock towards President Trump, because he represented somebody who wasn't part of that inside corruption. And I'm, I'm hoping that, that uh, people will recognize that that's, that's what, I'm, what I stand for, too, that I'm not afraid to stand up and say, look, these people are corrupt. They do not have the best interests of the American people at heart. They have an entirely different interest. And that's a, uh, you know, a globalist, socialist, totalitarian world. And this country right now, and no one should, and, and, and I'm not going to pussyfoot around the issue. Uh, the fact of the matter is this country is run by globalist elites uh, who are aligned, many of them, uh, more closely to the government of Xi Jinping than the government certainly of, uh, of Donald Trump when he was president. And this uh, administration seems to be uh, not only uh, compliant, but complicit with uh, Xi Jinping and the CCP in the policies they're following. Uh, this is a president who wants to tell uh, Vladimir Putin what he can do on his own border. Uh, and if the situation were reversed, uh, would be, uh, I think most Americans would have a fit. Uh, and, and Putin said this. I mean, he said, what would you do if uh, he uh, were encroaching on Mexico or yeah. uh, one of the Caribbean nations? Uh, uh, by the way, since we've got some experience with that, we know what we do. So I, I don't understand how the American people are, as you, uh, you know, said, you know, in some cases, utter sheep and oblivious to what is before their very eyes happening in uh, real time and uh, on uh, color TVs all over the country. Yeah, it, it's just shocking how, how passive everybody has become. But, you know, my wife and I went down and visited the, uh, uh, the invasion of the southern border and right. uh, videoed it. And I sent my video clips to every major news outlet, including uh, the folks at the you know, state uh, uh, TV hosts whose shows I appear on, and nobody played it. But I had clear video of Texas National Guard, Customs and Border Patrol, actively engaged in cooperation with the cartels, bringing over as many uh, uh, illegals as possible. And uh, minors, unescorted minors, said Patty and I, uh, spoke with a, a nine-year-old from Guatemala standing in the unescorted miners' line in, in Roma, Texas. Mind you, this young lady had just gotten off a rubber raft a few minutes earlier. We asked her, where are you going in the United States? She says, New Haven, Connecticut. Right? See, wow. Before they ever get to this side of the Rio Grande, they've been re-outfitted with new clothes, new shoes, 
presumably new identities and locations where they're going to be sent to the United States. The uh, Customs and Border Patrol, before they started bringing the people over from the other side, had the buses lined up, happens in the middle of the night. They knew how many people they're going to get and where they're going to send them. Uh, and uh, it's, it's not like you see on television where you've got beleaguered Border Patrol agents chasing down an, a, uh, an unreachable number of illegal aliens. It was totally by, by agreement and uh, a controlled exchange. We, we witnessed the destruction of our civilization right before our eyes. And so I asked the head of the, the Border Patrol there who was arranging all this that night. This was after the Supreme Court had ruled on the reinstatement of the Remain in Mexico policy. Right. I said, had this level of, of uh, immigration, is this level of people the same as it's been? And he says, yeah, it's always this busy. And I said, well, has this changed since the Remain in Mexico policy has been reinstated? His response was, I don't get involved in politics. Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't. Uh, the Border Patrol doesn't. Uh, the former the former top officials of the Border Patrol and Customs uh, have told me straight out uh, when I say that the, the cartels are in control of both sides of that border. And any, anyone who tells you it's just the southern side, they're lying through their teeth. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, and there are, uh, you know, most people will say, well, they're lying or they're naive. There's no one naive involved whatsoever in the cross-border narcotics trafficking, sex trafficking, uh, and the export of death from uh, communist China through Mexico across that border uh, with uh, just uh, extraordinary doses of uh, fentanyl enough in the most recent apprehension to kill uh, 50 million Americans. I mean, and and people just keep uh, accepting collateral damage. At and, some and you point, know, at some point, collateral damage will become the entire nation. Well, the, yeah. And you know, this is this isn't a secret. This happens right in front of everybody's eyes, and everybody turns a blind eye to it. And you know, what two million illegal aliens this year? Yeah. Uh, enough drugs to kill everybody in the country, and. Uh, the death rate from opioid overdose outshadows every other thing, and yet uh, it's 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 ignored. And uh, we're worried about a, a border intrusion in in uh, in Ukraine on the other side of the world. Exactly right. Uh, more discussion about the border, the the eastern border of Ukraine and the western border of Russia, uh, which they share. There's more discussion of that in Washington D.C. than there is of our border with. Mexico. That's outrageous. It's stupid. It's glaringly uh, uh, just absurd uh, to even imagine that uh, Mitch McConnell, the head, and I, I'm not going to get you involved in this. It's my statement. Uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, Kevin McCarthy are rhinos, and rhinos are trying to tear the guts out of the Republican Party. Uh, and you've talked about passive aggressive. Those. <laughs> Those rhinos who populate, unfortunately, uh, by too great a number, uh, the Republican Party, uh, have done extraordinary damage, not only to President Trump. Uh, we, we owe that to the, to the left, the deep state, and the radical Dems who have been leading that party for the last 30 years. When they persecuted Donald Trump, harassed him, hounded him, and, uh, and uh, it made it absolutely impossible for him to get a fair uh a fair report from any news organization uh you know we, we became a different country in my opinion so with that let me let me ask you this in in not over granular terms but give us a sense of your race right now where you stand uh the competition uh the resources from the establishment that have to surely be arrayed against you uh yeah. Tell us, tell us where you are. Well, you know, I'm, I'm running against two five-term congressmen, uh, the former uh, governor of Missouri who resigned in disgrace and our current uh, sitting attorney general. And then there's a guy, there's a number of other candidates, uh, one of whom is the uh, president pro tem of the Missouri Senate. But the, but the, the congressman, the ex-governor and the attorney general are the real competition. And they're the, the folks that are supported by the party. Because I'm uncontrollable, I mean, I'd, I've never been a candidate for anything before. I, I don't need to be doing this. I'm, I'm doing it because I think it's a, something that God has called me to do and the country needs right now. Um, we, are, we have no support for the mainstream party. In fact, 
very shortly after I announced my campaign, uh, a former lieutenant governor of the state of Missouri was going around trying to get a coalition of people to talk me out of running, which I figure that if the mainstream party is that opposed to me, I must be doing something right. But we have tremendous ground support. We've had over 27,000 individual contributors, many times a number of any other candidate. Um, they're all, all small time contributors, you know, mom and pop. We got a we got a campaign contribution in last week uh, with three quarters taped to the donation uh, packet, and you gotta you just gotta have your heart go out to a lady who's yep. gonna give you seventy five cents and mail it in with a letter of support. I mean, that's those are the real people in this country. Those are the people I want to represent, not the billionaires and the fat cats and the and the lying rhinos. Well, the Trump. The Trump administration used to refer to those in the Trump campaign as the forgotten American. Well, the forgotten American has been once again forgotten by the Republican Party, in my opinion, and it it, it concerns me deeply. And uh, and not and even more than forgotten, despised. Yeah, they have yeah. they 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 don't like the fact that there are people out there that aren't controllable. They they find them to be the enemy. When the when the Department of Justice this year declared that white white extremists are the greatest threat to America more so than ISIS or any foreign terrorist organization. That That's the disdain that this government, including the rhinos, have for the average American out there. Yeah, and it, it isn't just the political arena. We're also watching it in our Pentagon, the top officials, the military leaders and civilian leaders with the same woke nonsense and this a same silly and absurdist view. I, I mean, when you hear the def Secretary of Defense start talking about the, the biggest threat is the uh, military order within uh, the, our armed forces. Uh, it, it, you know you're dealing with complete idiots uh, who are hell-bent on anything but defending the nation. I, I, it's outrageous. Yeah, well, uh, once I, again, I, I go full circle. Every one, of these, every one of these programs is designed to identify and exclude from, from position people that are independent thinkers and aren't part of the woke crowd because now you do two things. One is you consolidate your power within the organized power structure. And the other is you now have identified and have on an enemy's list all the people that are not subject to your direct control. Right. Well, I've been on the uh, enemy's, <laughs> the enemy's <laughs> list for some time now. Uh, and uh, my wife and I, not always our family, but my wife and I, uh, are used to it. Uh, it's uh, it is it is unfortunately, as you pointed out, uh, the price of public participation and being in the arena. I want to thank you for taking that uh, that step and making that judgment and that and what we know is a, a great sacrifice for you and your family. Uh, but I'm sure that the people of uh, Missouri appreciate it and will respond. Uh, and I'm no longer under any constraint whatsoever, because uh, I, I've learned the, uh, you know, it's one thing for me to be independent. It's another thing to live independent. This podcast, uh, The Great America Show, will do everything it can to help you in your campaign and to assure that uh, you uh, have the best shot in the world of uh, representing the folks who desperately need it uh, there in Missouri. So whatever we can do, let us know. Uh, we will uh, uh, support your campaign. We will publicize your candidacy. And uh, we're a little acorn, but we will have our, uh, our, our minuscule impact uh, uh, out there as best we can. Well, I appreciate it. And I, you know, what I say every day is this is what I call a post-political time in America. You can't count on the politicians to help you. The government's there not to help you, but to take away your power and take away your freedom. Every, every individual, every American citizen needs to stand up by themselves and defend their freedoms, refuse to comply, refuse to, to uh, uh, do what the government says when the government makes illegal mandates, illegal and unconstitutional executive orders, and just stand up for freedom. And that's, that's, that's a movement that I hope that we can start and continue until enough people in this country stand up and recognize what's going on, that we can, we can put a stop to it and, and bring our, our freedoms back. Well, I'm only more enthusiastic after spending this time talking with you about your candidacy and what I hope will be your contribution to uh, this nation's uh, well-being and uh, assured uh, destiny, its future. Uh, Mark McCloskey, we thank you for being with us and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Appreciate I sure it. Pre I sure appreciate the opportunity and 
Thank you very much. You betcha. Thank you so much. Mark McCloskey, candidate for the United States Senate from Missouri. I never tell anybody what to do, but I sure, well, I do tell the deep state and the Marxist left what to do and where to go with it. But uh, my fellow citizens, I never tell what to do, but I do want you to know about some of the choices. And I think he is one of the, uh, the great choices. Uh, and uh, I'm going to do what I can to, to, to help him along, along the way, no matter how modest that effort. Join us again tomorrow for the Great America podcast. Stay in the fight. Truth, justice, and the American way will prevail against all enemies, against all odds.